0: Uh, One that's significant and he misses being here and he he has to be on death's door or feel like it if he's not here this morning. And so he did and let's keep him in prayer. Let's go before God. Our great and our holy God, we thank you for gathering us this morning and giving us songs to sing like wonderful, merciful Savior. That you are a God who forgives. You are our God who has revealed Yourself to us in holiness and majesty and justice, yes. In coming judgment, as we've read, yes. But also as the one who bore that judgment for those willing to turn to You. A God full of mercy and grace and kindness to sinners, who yet but will acknowledge their sin and turn and receive Your grace in Christ. We ask you this morning that you would comfort Pastor Reardon and give him, Lord, relief from his headache. We ask you this morning that you would open our hearts to hear your word, to hear you speak to us, and to marvel at the glorious mercy of Christ revealed in our passage this morning. Be with us, Spirit of God. Open our eyes, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to yield and obey to you in all things. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to chapter 20 of Matthew as we come to the conclusion of this glorious chapter. And in the conclusion of this chapter, we also have, as was already mentioned, a beautiful portrait of the mercy and of the kindness and of the grace of Of God revealed in Christ. Now, mercy, to give us a working definition, may be essentially defined as this taking pity or showing kindness and concern for those in need. Taking pity or showing kindness out of concern for those who are in need. Another has defined it in this way, and I quote His goodness toward those in misery and distress. So the goodness of God exercised towards those who are in misery or distress. Now it is a quality that is noticeably lacking in the false gods that are formed in the imagination of fallen men. As a matter of fact, at the time of Christ, the Greek and the Roman gods, which had for so long occupied the minds and the religious affections of many, were known as little more than cruel tyrants. They were as morally debauched as their worshipers. They simply were more powerful than than them and could elicit from them obedience to some measure, could elicit to them some response of fear. Such were the gods of fallen men. They were basically selfish, disinterested, and cruel. In contrast to that, however, is the one true God, the maker of the ends of the earth and the God of Israel, whose glory is revealed not in cruelty, not in raw displays of power, not in forcefulness, but in his mercy, but in his mercy. Psalm 145 verses 8 through 9 says this, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness, The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. That is the response of praise from the people of God who know their God, that he is a God of mercy. He is a God of patience. He is a God of grace. He is the God that they worship. And this was significant as a footnote to this because the gods of the pagan nations were were worshipped as forms of manipulation to get them to do things, but the God of Israel was a God who committed himself in covenant love to a people whose response was not to manipulate their God, but to respond in adoration and praise and wonder at his glorious grace and mercy to them. As a matter of fact, you could say that God's relationship with his people, Israel, and for us today, could be described in these words as a relationship of mercy. Psalm 106 verse 1 says this, The psalmist praises God. He says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting. The psalmist then spends about 42 verses recounting the sin of the nation of Israel. And God's deliverance of them when in misery and distress they cried out to him. And God came in in his sovereign faithfulness and commitment to them, delivered them out of the distress and brought them to a place of safety and renewal. And we who know God, who walk with him by faith and who know Christ identify with that because we understand the mercies of God that are extended to us continually as we are repeatedly feeling the weight of our sin and because of our sin or various circumstances in life are brought to a place of distress, a place of misery, a place of heaviness and yet we know his deliverance is time and time and time again when we call out to him. The greatest Mark of the heart of God, the heart of the God who is, isn't just physical deliverances, but it is in his act of redemption. It is in the very thing that Jesus told his disciples he was going to Jerusalem for, which is to die for them in verse 28 of Matthew 20, to serve them by becoming a ransom for them. In other words, to be the price for their redemption. His suffering being the means by which we as sinners and they as sinners could be forgiven, forgiven. And it is this Christ, this wonderful, merciful Savior, that is put on display for us this morning. And the main idea here of this passage, then, that Matthew has laid out for us under the inspiration of the Spirit, is that Jesus is a merciful Savior for those who know their need. Let's read our passage and then we'll look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 29 of Matthew 20, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. And they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and he called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Go back up to verse 29, and let's notice first here his purposeful move to Jerusalem. Matthew simply says, As they were leaving Jericho, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And as has been stated many times, he is now on his final journey to the city of Jerusalem, the place where he should have been received with joy, but it was a place where he reminded his disciples time and again that he was going there, in fact, to be killed, to be crucified by his own people. Jerusalem is his final destination, and it is coming nearer and nearer to him. Jerusalem is about 15 miles of Jericho, where we find them in Matthew chapter twenty. And the full reality of his statement as they traveled this final 15 miles to this supposedly holy city was obscured from his disciples. They were oblivious, though Jesus had told them, to the realities that were coming upon their Lord and their Master. He had made it abundantly clear, but they were at this point too spiritually dull to fully grasp it. But Jesus knows, and he is leading the way. He's leading the charge to the very purpose he came, to accomplish it, to accomplish redemption for his people. Now as he leads, there is a large crowd that is following him. And now this is probably one of the largest crowds to date that have attached themselves to him. His popularity is at a peak, it's at a climax Everyone who has heard anything about Jesus is flocking all the more to him. And on top of that, his popularity being at a peak, the fact is is that the celebration of the Passover is just a little over a week ahead. And so you have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of pilgrims who are also flocking to Jerusalem. And here, a large portion of them are attached to the person of Jesus and following him. Now, Matthew does not tell us when they left, the area beyond the Jordan in chapter 19, verse 1, where he last located them. But he simply picks it up as they leave Jericho and encounter these two blind men who are sitting along the road. Now, at this point, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each emphasize different aspects of the account that we need to address up front. First, Mark and Luke both mention only one blind person, while Matthew mentions two as a matter of fact, Luke 18:5 says a blind man was sitting by the road begging and Mark chapter 10 verse 46 even gives him a name. He says he was the blind beggar known as Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Now the fact that Mark gives his name suggests that he was the leader of the two, he was the instigator of the conversation, he was in a sense the spokesman often like Peter himself was for the 12 disciples. It may also indicate that Bartimaeus was a well-known Christian by the time that Mark wrote his gospel, and so he gives his name because many would already know who he is and would have identified him. Whatever the case may be, both Mark and Luke mention only Bartimaeus in the healing, while Matthew mentions that there were two. Secondly, Luke informs us that Bartimaeus was calling to Jesus as he was approaching the city of Jericho. While Matthew, or excuse me, Luke, has him approaching Jericho, Matthew and Mark mention that Jesus is leaving Jericho. Now there are two main possibilities for this. First is that there are two Jerichos. Josephus mentions in his uh, work, uh, "Wars." That there were two Jerichos, an old Jericho and a newer Jericho, built not on the old ruins but nearby. And the newer Jericho in the times of the New Testament was a prosperous, well-to-do city that even housed a winter palace for Herod. It is where Zacchaeus lived, that wealthy, wealthy tax gatherer who we would meet in Luke chapter 19. Therefore, it is possible that Matthew and Mark are referring to Jesus leaving the older Jericho while Luke is referencing his approach to the newer, the New Testament and populated Jericho where Jesus will enter and have his encounter with Zacchaeus immediately following the healing of the blind men. Another possibility is this that Jesus first encountered the men as he was entering the city, which is uh, recorded by Luke in Luke 18.35, at which point he also mentions in verse 36 that Bartimaeus began to inquire from the crowds when he heard all of the commotion who this was, only later to find out that it was Jesus, and that it's possible that Matthew and Mark then picked that up when Jesus was leaving and where he actually had his encounter with Bartimaeus and the other blind man. On the side of the road where they were waiting for him. Now in all likelihood the first scenario is correct. That he's Matthew and Mark are simply referring to him leaving the old Jericho. And Luke is referring to him as entering the new Jericho in the times of the New Testament. In either way it shows that they are easily reconcilable these accounts. And simply give a fuller picture of the movement of Jesus. Now here it is then in Matthew chapter 29 that he picks up the scene with two blind men sitting by the road. And he again chooses not to single out Bartimaeus that he might bring greater attention and focus on the healing mercy of Jesus. Now let's look at verse 30, that being said. And notice here a persistent faith of the needy. Persistent faith of the needy. And two blind men are sitting by the road. Hearing that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And this is really an incredible scene of persistent and of determined faith. Now, it is not unusual that we would find these men near Jericho. Jericho actually produced a balsam bush, which was... Uh, had an element in it that was used by medicine at that time to heal certain uh, ailments of the eye and certain conditions that caused blindness. And so there was an increased number of blind people, typically around the area of Jericho, and being blind, they were also, by the road, many of them, begging, trying to receive a living So these two men are possibly two out of many sitting on this road, yet it is these two men who will soon be the objects of the Lord's compassion. And let's consider their condition then. They were really in a desperate situation. They were in a desperate situation. They were, of course, blind. It means they could not see. They had no use of their eyes. And this is a very serious condition at any time in the history of the world, but it was even more so then. Today there is some alleviation through various helps seeing eye dogs, braille, government programs, so on and so forth. None of those were available at the time. It was really a quite horrendous position to be in that put you totally at the mercy of others. You were totally dependent on the help of others. They would have been uniquely in danger of robbers, particularly out outside of the city they would have been uniquely susceptible for people to take advantage of them and to use them they were unable to work and so they were entirely dependent on other people as a matter of fact god made provision for the care of the blind in his law leviticus 19:14 says this that god forbade anyone from putting a stumbling block before the blind in Deuteronomy twenty seven, eighteen, he says, Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. In other words, God is recognizing their vulnerable position, and in mercy and kindness is making provision for them even in his law. He knew they needed special protection because of their condition. And furthermore, because blindness is mentioned as a judgment of God in such places as Deuteronomy 28:28 28, 28, the Jews tended to see it as a judgment of God in other words that blindness was a condition that resulted uh, as a result of either that individual sin or the sin of his parents As a matter of fact, we see that exact attitude in John chapter 9, verse 2, where the disciples encountered a blind man and they asked Jesus, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That was common Jewish thinking at that time. Now, because of this thinking, there was often little mercy and compassion extended to them. Generally, As a matter of fact, in John chapter 9, we'll find that that man who was blind was begging, and yet later his parents are easily found and brought before this tribunal of Jewish leadership, which shows that his parents had essentially abandoned him. They had essentially left him to his condition to live whatever life he had to eke out for himself as a blind person, and so he was left begging. And it's very likely that this is the case with these two blind men on the road here. Probably abandoned by their own family, left to this condition of begging just to make a living, totally dependent at the mercy of others, living in a world of darkness. They were in a desperate condition. And here, Matthew simply says they are sitting by the road, but both Mark and Luke mention that they were beggars. They were beggars. It's how they survived. They went into the cities and begged for food or for money or they sat next to the roads that people traveled on and maybe someone would be kind enough just to give them a little food. And from this desperate condition, look at their desperate plea. And so they cry out. They cried out saying when they knew that it was Jesus who was a part of this crowd passing by, be merciful to us, son of David. And this is a strong and a desperate cry the verb here, and I'll mention it because it's a word that sounds like what it means. The word comes from a verb called "crazo," and it, it speaks of a loud groaning, sometimes even of an anguished cry. The Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this word to translate many of the psalms where the psalmist is crying out to God from a place of deep distress and anguish of soul. Crying out for deliverance even from his heart to restore a nearness of God to him or from a desperate situation in danger from his enemies. It's said by one that it's used often to speak of individual or national emergency, and so it is. In the New Testament, interestingly, this verb is used to describe the cry of the demons who called out through the demon-possessed man when they came in contact with Jesus in Mark. Chapter 8, verse 29. It was what Peter did when he was uh, to, trusting Jesus to walk out on the water. And then he began to seek and he, and he cried out to the Lord to save him. It was the cry of the father who had the demon-possessed son who used to often go in the fire and the water. When he cried out to Jesus that he might have mercy on him and on his son. It's the word that's used to reference Jesus' final cry when he was on the cross. And it says that he cried out with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. It's a picturesque word that sounds like it's meaning. And here are these two men sitting next to the road in that same anguish and that same desperation. And yet with a tinge of hope, they're crying out with loud voices to be heard among the noisy and the bustling and the chattering crowd. And it's not simply a one-time cry out. It was a continual crying out. Notice that in verse 31 that the crowd sternly warned them, but they cried out all the more. It wasn't just one cry warning and another cry. It was a continual crying out. It was a continual seeking the mercy of the Lord who was passing by. These were desperate men, and this was a desperate plea. And look at the reaction of the crowd, which is a despicable It says in verse 31, The crowd sternly warned them to be quiet. Sternly warned them to be quiet or that they should be silent. This is a strikingly harsh reaction to these two desperate men. And the term speaks of a strong disapproval, a strong disapproval, a a forceful reaction, if you will. It's the same term, actually the same verb that was used back in chapter 19, verse 13 that we looked at there. When it says these children were being brought to Jesus and the disciples sternly warned them. They rebuke those parents who were bringing these children to Jesus, thinking that they might be a disturbance to him. And of course Jesus corrects them there, and so he's also going to correct the crowds in our account here. And what it is, though, is it shows this. It's really a demonstration. And what what Matthew is bringing out for us in both of these occasions, both with the disciples and here, is just how out of line the disciples' hearts and the hearts of the crowd really are with Jesus and really are with the Messiah. I mean, there's two different treks which are going on here. Now, Jesus has already made that clear with the disciples. He's here as one who serves. He's here to demonstrate the kingdom first in its humility before he... Exalted in its glory. And yet the people didn't get that. The disciples weren't getting that. To them at this point, again, the kingdom is all about triumph and glory. It's not about mercy, compassion, humility, sacrifice, gentleness, and love, which are later going to be the marks of the very evidence of spiritual life and citizenship in the kingdom of God. So this is a striking contrast, really, between the goals and the expectations of the crowd and that of Jesus. And there's a sense when the, where the people are filled with this joyous expectation of the revelation of the Messiah, which we'll look at more next week. But it is all built on the wrong premise. It's all built on the wrong premise. And this continually gets exposed through their reaction to the needy and the contrasting reaction of Jesus. And in fact, these blind men have better sight into his character and the nature of his ministry than even these crowds who are seen. And so therefore, they're undeterred. The crowd is rebuking them. The crowd is sternly warning them. But rather than giving up, he tells us that they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So the crowd's attempt to silence them did have just the opposite effect. In fact, it emboldened them to cry out all the more with greater volume and zeal. The fact is that these men knew that Jesus was there. They knew that here was the Messiah. And they did not know that they would ever have this opportunity again. And so they are determined, they are undeterred, they are persistent. If Jesus is there, they want to have contact with him. If Jesus is present and near them, they want to get his attention. They would not be stopped by anything, no matter how harsh or discouraging these crowds were to them. And this really then, again, is quite an incredible display of faith. And though they could not see with their physical eyes, they had eyes of faith and they persisted in their pursuit of the mercy of Jesus. And what they call him is significant. How they address him is significant. They understand, they don't understand the full significance of what they're saying, but what they're saying, particularly at this point in Jesus' ministry, is quite amazing. Notice first that they call him Lord. Now there, they they certainly would have understood everything that we mean by that, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, the maker of heaven and earth. It was simply a title of reverent respect and honor. They knew him to be one who was from God. However, it is the second title that shows that what they're hoping in is, in fact, a true understanding at some level of the nature of his person and of his ministry. They call him, have mercy on us. Lord son of David son of David. Now this is significant. This is very significant. Where does this come from? Well, you might remember, it comes from God's covenant to David back in 2nd Samuel chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. God made a promise to King David. He made a promise that your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever and ever. The point is, the Jews understood that to be a promise that God was making to David that a descendant of his would sit on the throne of Israel, and when he sat, this particular descendant, on the throne of Israel, he would be a king over God's people forever and ever. It was the anticipation of his people that was eschatological. In other words, it was their identification of the end of the age when this Messiah would come who would be this promised son of David. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel. Just listen as I read it. As God is rebuking the shepherds of Israel for failing to feed his people, he says, but don't worry because I am your true shepherd and I'm sending one who will feed you. He says in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, And he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. I am the Lord. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I, the Lord, have spoken. They were anticipating this one, the son of David. He was the Messiah. Listen to Isaiah. There are many places we could go, but let me read to you just one more. That would have been in the minds of these men as they're making this claim about Jesus. Isaiah 9, 7, he says this. Well, actually, very beginning in verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Listen to verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will accomplish this they expected one to sit on the throne of david this one who was going to come was going to be wonderful counselor he was going to be mighty god He was the one who was going to establish the kingdom of Israel forever. He was going to rule over his people. And these two blind men here with the eyes of faith are hearing of Jesus and they know this is the one that we've heard of. This is the one we've heard has opened the eyes of the blind. This is the one whose teaching we have heard has confounded the religious leadership. This is the one who has shown mercy and kindness to the people of God. And he's here. And this is the one who is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. They had a clear faith in that. And so in this title is a demonstration that they knew who it was at some level who they were crying out to. And they were not going to let him go. Sadly, it would be the same title on the lips of Those who welcome him into Jerusalem in chapter 21, of course, in emptiness and in vanity. But this is central to the whole testimony of Matthew. How did Matthew begin his gospel? Do you remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, son of David, here he is. Here's the Messiah. Here's the long-awaited one. Here's the one who will deliver his people. Here's the one who will walk in righteousness and establish righteousness in Israel. And here he is. And these blind men, they get it. They get it. They know this is the promised one. There were many male descendants of David, but there was only one promised son. And here he is. And here he is. The crowds didn't understand it, but these blind men did But what's even more significant is this. What's even more significant, or equally so, is this. is the cry of these two blind men. Look at what they say. Not only son of David, but they attached to the messianic ministry of Jesus his mercy. His mercy. And that is significant because that is not what the rest were attaching it to. But here it is. They had an insight into the character of God that the others were in fact blind too. Now mercy is an essential quality of those who are in the kingdom. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, right? Those are the ones who are in the kingdom of God. Those are the ones who are poor in spirit, mourn over their sin. They are the ones who will inherit the earth. Sadly, it was this very quality that the leadership, the apostate leadership of the Jews, Failed to demonstrate. Listen to what he'll say to them. Then just listen to it. In verse 23 of chapter 23. Woe woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, which are what? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. The leadership lacked the mercy of God. The crowds lacked the mercy of God. Even the disciples demonstrated an incredible lack of the mercy that should have demonstrated those in the kingdom. But here they're looking to the Messiah and they're saying essentially the Messiah will not lack showing mercy to us. He is God's true representative. He is the one we're longing for and waiting for. Mercy is the mark of our God and it is the mark of our Messiah and we are going to lay hold of it. We're going to lay hold of it. And so this is a crucial connection, an absolutely crucial connection. And far beyond the connection for his willingness to save them from their blindness, but mercy is the very attribute of God which will be the heart of their salvation. The heart of their salvation. He didn't come to relieve Them of their blindness and of disease and so forth. He came to take care of the real problem, which was their sin. Although they would not have necessarily fully gotten that. But this is certainly showing that they're in that trajectory. These are certainly believers who when the message of Christ came in the resurrection would have been those who gladly accepted it and embraced him as the merciful one who had redeemed them from their sin. And they should have understood this. This is, not a, this is not an obtuse kind of reality to the mercy of God to the nation of Israel. They should have understood at the very heart of God's relationship to them was his mercy to them in the atonement. you remember what the lid, the top of the ark was called? It was called the mercy seat. That's where the blood of the atonement was rubbed and sprinkled. It was the mercy of God that was their salvation. It was the mercy of God that would accomplish their atonement. And it was the mercy of God who would show and answer the request of these two men. Now interestingly, and this is important, and we'll address it later, that this verb is found only in one place, Matthew 5-7, where it does not come from the lips of one crying out to Jesus from a place of desperation, from a place of misery, from a place where they can only elicit from God his pity and his mercy. And even more interesting is that is it's found on the lips of a Gentile Canaanite woman back in chapter 15 and of the father who was, had the demon-possessed son. And here are these two social outcasts, these two nobodies, these two dregs on Israel's society according to the Jewish leadership at the time. But they know they needed mercy, and they knew that that was a part of Messiah, and so they weren't going to let it go. They were crying out to him. And this is important because it is the plea of one who knows they have no resources, that they have no hope, that they have nothing they can gain on their own, that they're looking to another. And that's why it's the same hope, interestingly, that's also used, same term of what was shown in Matthew 18 to the to the slave who was brought before the king and he had no resources to pay back. What did he want? He wanted mercy. He wanted mercy. And in chapter 18, 33, God says, I showed you mercy, but you were unwilling to show it to others. And so here are these two blind men. They have no hope. They have no other resources. They are in a desperate situation. They need nothing but the pity of their God and of their Messiah. And so they cry out to him, for mercy and beloved let me say this is the picture of a christian this is a picture of our receiving the mercy of god if you have never come to the place of this helplessness to do anything on your own then it is likely you've never come to a place to truly have received the mercy of god first peter 2:10 describes us as a people who have received mercy have received mercy So here these men recognize their need, their helplessness, their poverty of resources, and they cry out. And you know where you don't hear this cry? Where are you never going to find this plea in the pages of Scripture? On the lips of the Pharisees. On the lips of the crowds. Why? They didn't need mercy. Glory? Yes. Exaltation? Yes. Mercy? No. No. Because they were outside of the kingdom of God. And so with all of their robes and with all of their learning and with all of their pomp, they are the ones who miss the kingdom. And here these blind beggars rejected by their own people, probably their own family are the ones who are going to receive it. That's why Jesus will say in Matthew 21, 31, it's these, these who are destitute, who know their need, who are going to get into the kingdom of God before you. Who refused to see your situation and refused to come to Christ to receive mercy. But they knew it. They knew they needed it. And this is an incredible demonstration of persistent faith. They would not be silenced. And think about this. They never saw a miracle of Jesus. They never saw it. They were blind. They had only heard the message of Jesus. They had heard about his works. They had heard about his deeds. And so their faith is really a demonstration of faith indeed that faith comes by what? Hearing the word of Christ, the message of Christ, and believing in. So they had heard what Jesus had done and they believed having never seen a miracle. That's why J.C. Ryle said this of these two men, Such faith may well put us to shame. With all our books of evidence and lives of saints and libraries of divinity, how few know anything of simple childlike confidence in Christ's mercy and power. And even among those who are believers, the degree of faith is often strangely disproportionate to the privileges enjoyed. So it was for them and so it is for us. What an incredible demonstration of their faith and their Messiah. Let's notice next here then the willing mercy of the Savior. The willing mercy of the Savior. What does He do? The crowds are willing to pass them by, the crowds are willing to silence them, the disciples are willing to pass Him by. Those who are supposedly wanting to attach themselves to the ministry of Jesus are willing to pass them by, but what does Jesus do? He doesn't pass them by. Look at verse 32. And Jesus stopped. He stopped. Can you imagine this? The masses of people that are surrounding him. And he just stops. Stops. And he calls out to them. The crowds are trying to silence them. And Jesus is graciously calling them to himself. And interestingly, Mark notes for us in Mark chapter 10, verse 49, that at this point, the attitude of the crowds changed towards them. Now that Jesus was calling them, they said to him, take courage, arise, he is calling for you. And then they add that this man, casting aside his cloak, he jumped up and he came to Jesus. He had been heard. His plea had been heard. They were ecstatic. They were ecstatic. And don't miss here that Jesus is displaying that very heart that he just laid before his disciples. He was one who came not to be served, but to serve. His whole life was a demonstration of serving and being a slave to others to meet their needs. And so here he stops and he calls these blind men to himself. And he asks him a gentle question. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And this is a legitimate question. They were beggars and they were blind. They could have wanted either money or healing. But Jesus could obviously figure out their greatest needs. And so he asked them this question that is fairly obvious. And he's doing it because he wants them to articulate their desire to both heighten their condition and heighten the reality of what it was he was about to do for them. And so they lay out a generous request and they say... They said to him, Lord, that our eyes would be opened, that our eyes would be opened. Again, they had heard of his mercy. He'd opened the eyes of the blind in chapter 9, verse 27 through 28. They certainly heard about that. They heard about the masses that were brought to him that he continually healed. And again, they knew this was a mark of the messianic ministry. Recalling Isaiah chapter 29 and 61 Verse 1, and others, Jesus said this. Remember when John the Baptist was doubting about the identification of Jesus, if he was the Messiah? He asked, are you the promised one? Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me they knew that to hear it was being displayed to them they were now going to be the ones to participate in this mercy they were thinking surely this is the one who showed mercy to others he will show mercy to us and again nobody else would show it to him but here jesus did look at his heart verse 34 It says he was moved with compassion and he touched their eyes he touched their eyes Now, interestingly, only Matthew mentions the compassion of Jesus, as he has in several other places. He mentioned their compassion when he looked at the people as a sheep without a shepherd. He mentioned his compassion when he looked out at the crowds that followed him that were hungry because they had gone days without food. Matthew draws special attention here to this character quality of Jesus, who is the Messiah. And he is filled with compassion. And so he says, moved with compassion, he touches their eyes. And this is, beloved, the heart of God. This is the heart of God. And this is the heart that so many of them had simply missed. With all of their religion, they missed the compassion in the heart of God. Remember that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of his nature. Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is God on display here. This is the God of Israel, the God of creation here. And he's not some uh, distant, disinterested deity. He is one who has come near in the Son, and he's full of compassion. Compassion. How unlike the gods of men, even the God of the nation of Israel, what they had made him into. Jesus cared. He cared about their plight. He cared about them. And so he touched their eyes. He touched their eyes. A precious picture here. He touched the leper back in 8.3. And he touched the other blind man in chapter 9. He touched the frightened disciples when they were on the mound of transfiguration. In fear and trembling at what they had just heard from the father who spoke to them from a cloud. The point here is this. Where others distanced themselves Jesus drew near. Where others walked away, Jesus walked close. Where others would never touch them but cast them aside, Jesus didn't do that. He touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight, a testimony to the reality of his power. Obviously, unlike the charlatans and the false teachers and the pagan people who prance around and claim these powers of healing and leave so many only in a greater condition of misery and false hope that they've been let down the one chance they thought they were going to receive to be healed. But not so with Jesus. His power was real. And when he touched and when when he healed, it was immediate. There was no question about it. And so their sight came back to them. And you can only imagine the joy that they felt when their world of darkness came to an end. All they had known up to this point is darkness. And now all of a sudden, sight was theirs. Their life was changed. Everything was new. Jesus had heard them. He had heard them. And Luke notes that he Saw the sincerity of their faith, he said to them afterwards, Your faith has made you well. His faith, your faith has made you well. Now, Jesus healed plenty of people who didn't have genuine faith. Remember the ten lepers? Only one turned around. The others weren't believers. Many among the crowds weren't believers. Jesus' power to heal was not dependent on the faith of the one that he healed. It was dependent on his own power and his own demonstration that he is the sovereign one. And he is, in fact, even more importantly, the one who's going to destroy sin, which is behind the disease and the blindness and so on and so forth. And that will be forever eradicated in the kingdom that is to come. But here in their case he specifically mentions the gospel writers in Mark and Luke that they had faith. It was their faith that was on display here. And what a glorious testimony to the mercy of God. And why these blind men saw it even before they had their eyes opened so many of them didn't. This was the time of their visitation. This was the time that Israel's Messiah was near them. This was the time of their salvation. But they missed it. They missed it because they were unwilling to come to him. Yet this is the greatest display of mercy. This one who had come who was going to release his people from their bondage. Their bondage here displayed in the blindness of these people later displayed at the cross. It was the heart of the Savior that looked out from the cross that said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. They do not know what they're doing. In other words, don't hold the magnitude of this sin against them because they're ignorant. They don't realize that they're crucifying the Lord of glory. And all the way to the end, he's displaying the mercy of God to his people. And yet they were not seeing it. But here, these two blind men did. So what did they do? Well, Matthew tells us that they followed him. Luke adds that they went about glorifying God. In other words, proclaiming the glorious mercy and the power of Christ to all who would hear. Wonderful demonstration of the mercy of God. Let me note three things then that this scene teaches us. Three lessons that we're to take from this scene. The first is this. That true faith is not deterred by difficulties, but determined to lay hold of God's mercy in Christ. What do we see here? We see that the faith of these men was not deterred by all their obstacles, but they were determined to lay hold of God's mercy in Christ. They could have easily given up in discouragement, hopelessness, despair, overwhelmed by the sense of difficulty and resistance, but they did not because their faith was genuine. When faith is genuine, beloved, it will not fail to persevere in seeking the mercy of Christ. It doesn't mean that genuine faith will not falter. It doesn't mean that genuine faith will not stumble and oftentimes fail. What it does mean, when it is a faith that is a gift of the Spirit of God, it will persevere through all obstacles. It will persevere through all resistance. And it will not let go of Christ until it receives mercy. Until it receives mercy. It is the faith of Jacob who said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Until you bless me. Too often some who begin to see Christ give up when things are difficult. Ultimately it's because their desperation wasn't great enough. Their need was not felt deeply enough. And so Jesus warned about that back in Matthew 13. He says, look, some are going to start to follow. Some are going to be interested at first. But what's going to happen? It's only going to be temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises of the word, immediately he falls away. And others, they'll hear the word, but the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word out and it becomes unfruitful. That's faith that wasn't genuine. Genuine. But faith that is real, faith that is a gift of the Spirit of God, will persevere. And these men had faith and they would not let Christ go until they knew his grace. And so it is with every genuine desire to know Christ as Savior and as Lord. They would not walk away from salvation and mercy. And when God is calling someone, it doesn't matter what comes their way, they will not walk away from God's grace. No matter what comes their way. Now believers too can at times not know the joy and growth of spiritual victory because of giving up too soon. Even some of us who have genuine faith and love Christ and trust him alone for forgiveness and want to obey him, nonetheless, give up because we're weak in faith and we know little of the joy and the grace and the mercy that God has designed for us because we're so easily disheartened. We'd be like the blind man on the road who said, oh, okay, well, it's going to be hard, so I might as well just stop and give up in self-pity. Give up in knowing, thinking that God has somehow abandoned me. And Christians think that way sometimes. And these men stand as an example of us not to give up, but to persevere. And to the rest of us, as he says in Hebrews 12, 12, that we are to strengthen hands that are weak. First thing we see then and we learn is that true faith will persist in laying hold of the mercy of Christ. Second is this. You must recognize your blindness before you can receive sight. You must recognize your blindness that you, before you can receive sight. And this is what Jesus' miracles were, were much more than just a healing. We've, we know that and we've seen that. They were never an end in and of themselves. A blind person could be healed. And in fact, many blind people were healed that sterile perish in eternal perdition. It wasn't about just healing their blindness. It was pointing to something even greater than that. It was pointing, of course, to the glory and the power of God, but these, these demonstrations of going from darkness to light, from not seeing to seeing, were an illustration of the condition of the people. That's not a stretch. Jesus himself makes that same connection. He continually was reminding the people that here the light is among you and yet you're blind. You have eyes but you don't see. You have ears but you do not hear what I'm saying to you. You're like these blind men. It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that they have a veil that lies over their eyes because the God of this world has blinded their eyes so that when they read, they do not see the glory of Christ and of the forgiveness that God had brought even to them if they would have received it. They refuse to see their blindness. At the end of John chapter 9, when the Pharisees, in light of the testimony of the man himself, and in light of the testimony of his parents, and in light of the undeniable fact of a man who was born blind that had received sight, what was their final conclusion? Was that he was simply among the riffraff of the people. They said, Are you going to teach us? Us who are the purveyors of the law, the defenders of God's truth? And Jesus told them, He said, Look, If you were blind, because some of the Pharisees heard that and they said, you're not talking about us also, are you? And Jesus told them this. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. It remains. In other words, you can't begin to see and you can't begin to know the mercy of your God until you recognize that you're blind, until you recognize that you are in that miserable condition. Listen to what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, excuse me, in Laodicea. He says this. He says, because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Listen to what he says, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You don't know your condition, You're living in a dream. And beloved, how many people are in the church today who equate the religion with the same thing that the Jews did at that time with moralism? Going to church. Doing the right thing, and they've never truly come to grips with the reality of Christ as the Savior that He is. They've never truly crawled out to Him for mercy. They don't see that justice and mercy and humility of childlike faith because they've never brought to the point that's illustrated to us by these two blind men. Until a person is willing to admit blindness, until you're willing to admit sin, Until you're willing to admit your spiritual bankruptcy. And I don't mean just that I've sinned. I mean that I am bankrupt. I don't have anything before God. This is exactly what Jesus said when he said you enter the kingdom when you're poor in spirit. When you are destitute like these men. When you have no resources. And this is a picture to them. This is standing as an illustration and saying You've never seen your blindness. You think we see, and so you know what? You who see, in fact, are in darkness, and your sin remains on you. Let me mention to you just one verse. And I can't emphasize this enough when I say, as Scripture repeatedly reminds us, that this is not a Jewish problem. This is a fallen human religious person problem. Listen to what he said to them in Romans chapter 2. Just listen. Beginning in verse 17. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. We could say if you bear the name Christian and rely on your church attendance and service and know the word of God and have memorized verses. And you know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law or the Bible. And are confident that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And he goes on to condemn them insane: no, it's those who have responded to the mercy of God from the heart, who see Christ when he's held up as a satisfaction for God's wrath and righteousness on the cross, embrace him as their only hope. That's the one, the one who cries out to God in mercy. What these crowds were unwilling to do, these two blind men did and served to us as an illustration. You must be broken over your sin. How often do you confess your sin? How often are you brought to that kind of sense of need of the mercy of Christ? I know that some in this room never have been. Never. I pray that you would consider that. Let's notice lastly this. Jesus is a willing Savior. He's a willing Savior. True faith is persistent. Salvation comes to those who recognize their blindness, their need, who are in a desperate situation. But that Jesus is a willing Savior. And this really is what stands out gloriously in this passage. He's not hard. He's not uncaring. He's not disinterested. He's not cruel. As fallen man is, he's a gentiful, gentle gentle, wonderful and a merciful Savior. Sometimes we have such hard thoughts of God and of Christ when we have great trials, when we have great disappointments, when we have great difficulties in life, and we have such hard thoughts against God, such hard thoughts about his ways towards us. And the fact is, those are lies. They're not true. They're not true at all. Jesus stands before us here as a demonstration of the heart of God, full of compassion and full of mercy. Those who feel the burden and the weight of their sin, who feel the darkness of their own heart, The guilt of their corruption can turn to Jesus as a gentle Savior. Listen to what he said to those. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11. If you feel the burden of your sin, where else are you going to go but to the gentle Savior who provided a way of escape through his cross? For those who feel the weight of trials and fear and anxiety, God reminds us of this. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is the merciful Savior that God is. And the merciful Savior, I hope that, that you know and that you love and that you serve and that you adore and that you worship with your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the tremendous testimony of your word. We thank you for this account, our Lord Jesus, where the crowds are showing disheartened or disinterest and hardened hearts where your own disciples are not yet at this point understanding the true nature of the kingdom and the master that they serve. And yet, You display for us the heart of the kingdom of God, full of compassion and mercy. And how gloriously that would be displayed at the cross, as you gave up your body as a sacrifice, as you gave up yourself as a ransom for many, that the many who turned to you could be saved and forgiven and brought into your kingdom indeed. And I pray for those who are here who have never known that desperation of heart. Who do all kinds of religious things, but they don't know the true reality of being washed clean from their sin and having a clean conscience, that you would convict them, that you would cause them to cry out for your mercy, and that they would know you as Savior indeed. For the rest of us, remind us of the great glories of the mercy we've received in salvation, that we might serve you with whole hearts and humility and gentleness. Taking every opportunity and every moment of our life as a means to demonstrate our love for you and obedience. We thank you again for your word and for the Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. David.